It's a matter of manner, Hames. Assalamualaikum, everybody. Welcome back. It's been a while since we've been here. Um, so grateful to be back. Oh, you know what? This is going to need some new batteries. Okay, take two. Assalamualaikum, <laughs> Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, welcome to another session. Um, yeah, it's been this is our first session in December. It's been two uh, a two week break, um, but there is a very special um, date, I guess, to commemorate. Today is actually, in fact, our four year anniversary for Asuli. It was four years ago today on a Saturday that we convened in our our home in uh, Van Nuys, California, in Los Angeles. Um, where we had invited a lot of people to do our inaugural session for the Suli Institute. And so interesting because, if one, it doesn't feel like it's been four years. Um, you know, that was obviously a couple years before COVID even began, so we literally are talking about a completely different world. Um, and, you know, I, I went back and I watched the first recording um, of that and, you know, me giving an introduction about where we were and why we were there and just trying to remember all the people who showed up. We had a good number of people that were actually um, present there in the session. And it's so interesting because I think today, four years later, very few of any of the people that were there in that very first session are actually still with us. Um, and I don't know if that means, you know, watching online. I don't know if they're watching online, or, you know, they're certainly not present and, I, you know, a lot of them are out of contact. And that's totally fine. I mean, I think it underscores the nature of change and, you know, the, the nature of, um, you know, life. And, um, you know, we are kind of like a train, you know, we're heading in one direction and um, you know, we have always been headed in this direction, at least as long as I've known um, Sheikh. And it's like people jump on the train and come up with us for a little while, and they jump off and they come back on, or maybe they don't. And you know, it's honestly, it's it's really up to God um, and them. Um, but you know, um, as probably the longest rider on this train, <laughs> at least that I'm aware of, um, you know, I'm I'm grateful for this opportunity to continue on this journey and certainly four years ago while we were in Los Angeles we didn't ever imagine that we would be here in Ohio um, dedicating you know the, the vast majority of our time to studying the Quran in, in the very systematic way that we are and um, it's been an amazing journey so um, you know and part of that journey um, is certainly a lot of tests right I mean, we all know that everyone gets tested and Certainly in the last two weeks since we've been with you, I actually had a very serious test. It was my turn. And, um, you know, it's uh, tests are a wonderful reminder. Um, they're a um, chance to help you um, tr take a look at yourself. Um, you know, the details really are unimportant, but I think it's an incredible time to sort of break out of your own habit or your own, you know, things that you typically take for granted. Um, not the least of which, you know, these halakas and the khutbahs is, you know, we haven't had a khutbah or a halakha in the last two weeks. And certainly not having that was a reminder of what it's like not having that. Because um, we've been here now for, you know, almost 12 months. And in this rhythm of like, you know, two halakas a, um, a week, and then a chutbah on Friday, you know, and you start taking for granted the incredible learning um, and experience of being in a place. And it's not until you actually lose that for a moment of time when you actually are made aware of how valuable um, and, and unusual what you are getting is. So, you know, I'm extremely grateful for these reminders. And as we know from everything we've learned in the Quran, like every time you get a test, 
this is God's way of giving you something and having you think about, um, like I should say, you could have, you know, different reactions to tests. You could be like, well, why me? Why this? You know, you could be very um, negative about it. Um, or hopefully you will take what we've learned here in the Quran is just to think, okay, what is it that God is trying to get me to learn? What is it that um, I'm supposed to do, understand, you know, um, whether it's about, you know, myself or, or you know, the way I'm treating others. Um, it's an opportunity for growth. And certainly this is a, co a constant pattern in my life that any time that I've had a test, you know, the more difficult it was, the more of an opportunity I had to really grow and learn. And it was like pain and um, all of that was an incredible teacher. And I think that if, um, you know, if I were to sum up, you know, what these tests are intended to help you look at, it's to really to answer, at least for me, three questions. You know, it's one, who am I? Two, what is my purpose? And three, what is my anchor? And, you know, if you've had the opportunity to answer those questions to your satisfaction, then it's a good chance to remind you who, you know, who am I, what is my purpose, and what is my anchor? Um, and, you know, who am I is such an important question because, you know, these three questions are huge because if you don't have those questions answered, then anytime you have a test, I think you are you know, your world is completely shaken and you're like flying in the wind and you don't really quite know, um, you know, where you're going to land. And that's, you know, not a great picture. Um, certainly if you want to, you know, get closer to God for one. So, you know, we often talk about this question of, okay, well, who, who am I? You know, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What are my tendencies? You know, um, what are the things that I fear? What are the things that I, you know, aspire to do? Um, and, you know, in this, it's it's interesting because, you know, I think human beings, and I certainly am not an exception, um, have a tendency to not want to deal with things that are difficult, especially when it comes to questions of who am I? So oftentimes you might come across a situation or a person or a relationship or something in your life and something that, you know, reminds you of something uncomfortable about yourself. And it's very easy either to shove it in the closet sweep it under the rug and just not deal with it, right? And it's like, I, I don't want, it's too scary. I don't, I don't want to handle, you know, confronting myself with the fact that I am impatient or I have an anger problem or I have, you know, uh, an issue with, you know, sensitivity or kindness or something like that. I just throw it in the closet, I'll deal with it later. And over time, you know, you fill up your, your closet with a lot of scary skeletons and, you know, you just, you can avoid it because you can compartmentalize and you can just get on with your life and not deal with it. Um, the problem is that while you don't want to look at your skeletons, a lot of times, you know, other people can see your skeletons. And, um, you know, whether, you know, it's not until you actually have the bravery, at least this is going to share with you, you know, my lesson or my journey, is, is not until you actually open that skeleton or that closet of skeletons and you go through it one skeleton at a time. And you take out the skeleton and you analyze it and, and you, you know, look at it closely and you, you address it and you finally say, okay, I can let go of the skeleton. And you work your way through the closet until you have an empty closet and nothing to fear anymore. And a lot of times the vast majority of people, majority of people don't actually even want to open the door to that closet. But I think part of what this journey has been for me um, started many years ago with doing that. Because until you actually own who you are and you know who, what's in your closet, you can't move forward because people will come and tell you 
<laughs> you've got this in your closet and you may be like, no, I don't. No, I don't. And, um, but the beautiful thing is when you go through that closet and you've got an empty closet and you've got nothing to be afraid of, when people come and say, hey, you know, you've got the skeleton, you say, I know, I know. And I'm working on it and you address it and it's not anything that you're afraid of anymore. So thankfully, um, and I guess I should say this, um, if people are struggling with that, because that's a really huge challenge, right? It's a really hard thing to confront who you are and what your skeletons are. Um, I want to recommend this book because I've recommended it to many people. It's The Artist's Way, and I think a lot of people know it, and it's um, a beautiful way. It's, it's like creative exercises to understand who you are and what you're good at, and, and I love this book for the way she argues for um, creativity, like each person's creativity is a channel to God. Like God wants us to be creative, and if we you know, identify what our creative cre creativity is, what our purpose is, maybe another way of saying it, um, and we, you know, find ourselves in that and we channel it, um, you know, whether you're a writer, you're an artist, you're a musician, or even if you're just, you know, really skilled doctor, um, this is a way that you are channeling the gift that God gave you into something beautiful. So um, it's exercises, and so if, if you're struggling at that stuff, then I would highly recommend that. So... The second question that um, I was confronted with in my test is, what is my purpose? Um, so, you know, I, um, you know, I get, uh, you know, I've been on this train with the Sheikh for many years. Um, you know, I, I've told my story in many other spaces. I'm a convert. You know, I wanted to look for something more beautiful and meaningful in my life. Um, I, you know found the Sheikh through, um, you know, a number of, I mean, I've told these stories before, but I became committed very early on in my journey that, you know, I want to be a Muslim, I want a beautiful path, and when I discovered um, the Sheikh's writings and, his, and him as a person, that was life transformative for me, and I felt that that was something that I wanted to dedicate my life to. And so, you know, for many years before Rasuli, um, you know, we were doing all kinds of things. It was really about education, but my role at that time was one to just, you know, advance on my journey so I could find out who I am and, you know, be in a place where I could actually do something of value. But I um, helped Sheikh with his scholarship, his teaching, his, you know, um, anything from media appearances, expert witnessing, whatever it was that he would do, because I believed that you know, this, his methodology, his approach, his living example, and all of that was the way forward. And whether he believed it or not, I believed it. And I felt like I could use my strengths to help spread this scholarship. Um, and it became the Suli Institute. We wanted, you know, as I've mentioned, if you get my, our weekly email, I said, you know, we were living in a time when it was clear that Islamophobia was getting worse and worse. And I really felt strongly that this is the scholarship, this is the approach that would make a difference. And I, um, and you know, we wanted to create this, this really institute to be a, you know, create an education effort that was really important and that could make a difference. And I've always felt that, you know, I've been very clear, I'm not a scholar. Um, and I always felt, you know, while before Suli, maybe I was just the right hand person, you know, taking care of, you know, life and, and also work. Um, after Asuli, I felt that, you know, my contribution could be telling stories um, about how this methodology made a difference in my life. So I could be seen as like either the RA or the, you know, the passenger. I'm like riding in the passenger seat, right, of the train. And I have so many stories to tell. And we know that in our world, what makes a difference is stories. 
um, and human stories and sharing like, okay, you know, you have this incredible scholarship here, but not everybody can be a scholar and not everybody can take that and understand, okay, yeah, that's really great, but what does that mean in life and what does that mean, you know, for, for me and how I can reach God? And I felt like since I was the longest, you know, passenger on this train um, and I had a lot of stories that I wanted to share, you know, whether, whether you like them or not, whether you agree with them or not, it's my testimony and this is part of who I am and what my purpose is. And so it was important to me, um, you know, and, and you know, certainly when we started four years ago, I didn't, there wasn't a role for me to give introductions, but that's just how it became. Um, and, you know, so that's, you know, we're all about education. And, um, and the last question is, you know, okay, what is my anchor, right? And, you know, I, um, we teach here that everything begins and ends with your relationship with God. And I think tests are such an incredible opportunity, like when your world around you crumbles and things that you thought you could count on aren't there anymore, or people, you know, are not, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, you go through situations where you are tested to the core and you have to ask yourself, okay, what do I do about that? Where do I turn? You know, what is my anchor? And, you know, if, and I think that given how we understand life is about change, right, four years ago, we didn't think we'd be living in a pandemic that seems, doesn't seem to, you know, want to end anytime in the near future. People that we knew four years ago are not here. Um, you know, situations and life changes, you know, Project Illumin will be over at some point and this will not be my reality anymore. You know, in all of that change, what is my anchor? And it's God. And if I, you know, how do I know that? Um, well, when things go wrong, I used to be like, okay, who can I call? Who can I talk to? You know, who can I explain this to? And who will, you know, give me a, a compassionate ear? It used to be human beings. It used to be my mom, you know, but over my, the course of my life, when something goes wrong, my reaction is to turn to God. And, and that's something that, it wasn't always like that, but it's something that became really important because, you know, as I was explaining to someone, you know, there's certain things you can tell your mom and certain things you can't. There's certain things you can tell your dad and certain things you can't. Certain things you can tell this friend and that friend and that friend, but you can't. There's no one that you can tell the whole picture to that they would even understand or even be able to help. But God can. And you don't even have to explain because God saw it and God knows what's in your heart and God saw what happened and God can just be there to comfort you if you have that kind of relationship with God. And that's what I have gained from being on this train and what I feel I need to help people who are interested in the train get to whether it's you know and hopefully my testimony can help in that and if it doesn't it doesn't you know it's it's this is just you know between me and god this is my payback to god for everything that i was given in my life starting from zero to now being a, a passenger on the train so you know um i just wanted to share that for what it's worth because certainly you know tests can cut you to the core and make you wonder like okay well if my purpose you know if people don't like what i do is that, how, do I, how does that make me feel about myself? And should I continue doing what I'm doing? And I think when you have a chance to really look at yourself and go, no, this is, I'm doing this because I truly believe in my heart that this is my service to God, and this is who I am, and this is my purpose, and, you know, and whether people like it or not, it's really irrelevant because people come and go, but I have to do what I feel is right by God, and I only, I, I'm the only one who can answer that question. No one else can answer that for me. And, you know, there's going to come a day when something happens to me. Well, Sheikh is not going to be here. Yeah, Sheikh is my, I love going to Sheikh, but he's not always going to be here. 
you know, and maybe my parents will not always be here. Or my kids might be busy with their lives. I'm not, you know, maybe I would be alone, but the only one who will be there for me is God. And if I don't invest in that relationship, then, you know, then I'm lost. I'm just, you know, alone. So, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful, honestly, for, for every test and, um, you know, grateful for the opportunity to break out of, you know, the the train of life, right, and say, okay, let me just take stock of where I am and where things are and what really is important and what really matters. Um, and as, you know, I've always said, like, I'm very much a, a believer in, I think what, I think it was Maya Angelou who wrote this, is one person with God is the majority and one person with God can do anything. You know, I really believe in that wholeheartedly and I believe that in order to do that you have to develop your relationship with God and think of God as your friend, not a distant, scary entity out there that's judging you, but actually your close, intimate friend, closer to you than your mom, closer to you than your dad, closer to you than your husband. And, you know, that is hopefully what we try to teach here is how to get there because that is, for me as the passenger on the train, what makes this train the only train worth taking. And, um, you know, what that means for Usuli, I don't know. We're always about, we don't, we just started this four years ago, you know, we, um, you know, we've always been about education and what, whether that means, you know, we build something huge or we just stay small, it doesn't, I don't know, it's up to God. But I think what we do is important. It starts with the Quran. And I'm so grateful for this opportunity to learn the Quran this way. I don't think you can find it anywhere else. And, um, if you've watched the Holocaust and, and, you know, I think that you would agree, hopefully, maybe not, I don't know, it's up to you, <laughs> it's between you and God. But I'm so grateful that we're back here and starting Surah Imran. Um, I know last night, um, as Sheikh was preparing, he was like, kept shaking his head. If only people, if only Muslims could understand what's in Surah Imran. If only Muslims could understand what's in Surah Imran. It was like a chant before bedtime, and I was like, well, hopefully you're going to teach us, right? And I'm so excited to start this journey. So um, anyway, alhamdulillah, and thank you all for being with us. Inshallah, I hope that story was worth uh, something. <laughs> but I don't care. It's my story, and I stick by it. Alhamdulillah. Thank you. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Subhanallahirrahmanirrahim. which according to most reports is the third surah in the Medinian period. So most sources say that it was Al-Baqarah, then Al-Anfal, and then Ali Umran. And after Ali Umran is Al-Ahzab. Um, so 
any unknown occupies a very critical period in the history of Muslims in Medina. Surah Al-Baqarah is revealed right after the Hijrah and it defines the Islamic mission, mission and it defines the Islamic mission in relation to uh, the Abrahamic messages and as we saw it anchors the foundational ethics of the Islamic mission. Al-Anfal is, is an interesting interlude but we'll, inshallah we'll get to that in due time. Al-Amran comes after the Battle of Badr, Al-Anfal is the one that is right at the wake of the Battle of Badr, the, the first battle fought by Muslims, and a decisive victory, and a jubilant victory at that. Muslims are clearly outnumbered, uh, clearly undersupplied in terms of actual material ability they're much weaker than their opponent but they have a decisive victory against their opponents and there is a certain euphoria after Badr uh, euphoria that comes with victory natural euphoria that comes with victory and a certain amount of confidence and sense of importance and mission but after in the battle of Uhud which is a as we will see in, in many regards, a very serious test and a demoralizing test for many. Um, added to that are challenges that we will talk about and so Al-Umran comes in and talks to Muslims in this critical period between the post-euphoria of Badr, the trauma of Uhud and surrounding circumstance, and before the major um, a new challenge that emerges with the Ahzab, which inshallah we'll get to. 
if one would try to sum up Al-Umran, and as we will see, what Al-Umran does, is theologically sophisticated, philosophically sophisticated, but most importantly, ethically quite sophisticated. If we sum up Ali Umran in so many ways, Ali Umran addresses the ethics of defeat, the ethics of trauma, the ethics of letdowns, disappointments. But what it has to say is multi-layered and so rich I pray that Allah helps me communicate effectively because it is critical everything in the Quran is critical but there are these moments where you just stand in awe and you take a deep breath and you say you know how how to 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 relate this how to to get it through or get it across okay we have a rather interesting um historical textual issues early on at the at the very beginning because most sources, Al-Umran is sort of a surah that is divided into two main significant portions. There is a portion of Al-Umran, the first half of the surah, that seems to talk about Al-Kitab, people of the book. And the, the the nuances and dynamics of Muslims with people of the book. The second half of Ali Amran seems to talk about specifically the Battle of Uhud and all the trappings around the Battle of Uhud. And most of the sources, the textual sources, say that the portion of Ali Umran that, this is the first half, mind you, that talks about the people of the book and says a lot of different things about the people of the book was revealed in response to a historical event known as Wafd Najran. Wafd Najran, Najran is, an air, is a, ge, a geographic area in Arabia. Um, um, it's close to, to Iraq, 
and Najran had an Arab tribe that had converted to Christianity. And this Arab tribe that, uh, the Christian Arab tribe, sent a delegation to the Prophet and the delegation was debated Muslims, debated the Prophet and Muslims in Medina and ended up not embracing Islam but ended up negotiating a um, a, a, a form of treaty with Muslims, a non-aggression non treaty, where, you know, they, they would not side with the enemies of Muslims and Muslims would not uh, take any actions against them. So, as I said before, the, in the old world, there is a presumption of war. Everyone is an enemy, unless proven otherwise. And so what they negotiate is that we, we are not enemies. But they don't embrace Islam. But the event with Weft Najran, most sources tell us that it was an event that took place in the later Medinian period, as late as the 8th century Hijra or the 9th century Hijra. While Battle of Uhud is fought in the early Medinian period, 2nd century or 3rd century Hijra. Sorry, 2nd year or 3rd year Hijra. So what is the challenge that we have here? Is that the second half of the Surah is supposed to be revealed in response to Uhud, an early Medina issue. And the first half is supposed to have been revealed in response to an event that takes place towards the latter, the later, sorry, the later part of the Medina era. And most sources then tell you what happened is that the second half of Baqarah was revealed first, and then years later, the first half of Baqarah was revealed, and then the Prophet والسلام, said, uh, sorry, I misspoke. The second half of Al-Umran, not Baqarah, was revealed first, and then the first half of Al-Umran was revealed much later, years later, towards the end of Medina period, and that the Prophet والسلام, said, okay, well, you know, this later half is joined to the first half to form Surat al-Umran. And of course it's possible. I mean, it, it, it is quite possible that part of Allah's revelation to the Prophet is that, you know, this first half, this, is, this first half 
which was revealed later, should be joined to the second half, which was revealed earlier, and in totality, this makes one surah called Al-Umran. Of course, as an interpretive matter, if, in fact, this is what happened, you are obligated as an interpretive agent, as a reader, to say, well, why did Allah put the first half revealed much later with the second half revealed much earlier? Why, instead of any other part of the Quran, instead of the second and first, instead of the first half revealed much later being a separate surah, why did the author here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, deem this to be a single surah? The assumption is that Allah is not doing things haphazardly. The assumption is that it is not just willy-nilly, right? And I think that that's a fair assumption. And I think it is unfair to the text of the Quran to not try to understand why is this a thematic, as a thematic matter, a total surah, rather than two separate surahs. Having said that, because I can, as we'll talk about, the, the, the thematic unity in Ali Amran, to me, is quite clear. Although you will not find in Islamic sources any attempt to deal with the thematic unity of Ali Omran. Muslims have always dealt with Ali Omran like they've dealt with Baqarah, the, the, these long swords sort of in chunks as, well, this is on this issue, this is on that issue, and that issue. We'll, but the thematic unity of Ali Omran is quite clear. But I have... some strong suspicions that the story of Wafd Najran, that delegation by Najran, by that Christian tribe in Najran, that it did not take place in the 8th or 9th century, uh, the 8th or 9th year, Hijra, but that it, in fact, took place much earlier. Although this is a minority view in terms of textual historical sources, and I could be, my mind could be swayed otherwise, I could be convinced otherwise because the evidence is not, uh, to my mind, is not decisive. Um, but there are indications that after the Surah Al-Baqarah, that the word 
had gone around Arabia. Arabia was abuzz with the news of the Arab prophet. And Arabia was abuzz with the news of the victory, the very unlikely and surprising victory of that new Arab prophet over the Qurayshis, in, over the Meccans. Mecca has for a long time been seen as a center of power among the Arab tribes and had not been challenged for a long time. Remember that Mecca had even resisted allegiance or falling under the sway of or under the authority of either the Byzantine Empire or the Persian Empire and had managed to maintain itself as an independent. Well, it, it didn't maintain itself as an independent because no one tried. No, there were many attempts by both superpowers to get Mecca under their suzerainty. But Mecca had resisted, and Mecca was, to be, was believed to have been sufficiently powerful, militarily powerful, that it was not challenged by Arab tribes for a long time, and was often alliances with Mecca were sought out in Arab feuding. So we know from many sources, I mean, if, if there is a, a, a huge eight-volume work, uh, I forgot the name of the author, but a huge eight-volume work about the history of Arabs before Islam, um, if you read through that whole work, you, you, you get a remarkable picture of the the complexity and nuances of the way that Mecca maintained a sort of a PR campaign, always bragging about its power, bragging about its privileges, bragging about its honor position, bragging about its uh, special position vis-a-vis -vis, um, the, the Kaaba and, the, the, and so on. And so the fact that they were defeated in battle by what everyone assumed was going to be a swift, um, a, a, a swift slaughter by the Meccans against their opponents. You know, everyone assumed that it's, of course, Mecca is just going to go in and just exterminate these um, dissidents these troublemakers that have went and set shop in, in Medina, uh, and especially that the, the Arabia was abuzz with news that the Jewish tribes in Medina were helping out Mecca and were egging on um, 
Mecca and other Arabs against the new prophet and saying that it's sort of like, okay, well, this is an Arab prophet or he's a false prophet because he's an Arab prophet. We are, it, it is well established in our scriptures that the prophet can only be an Israelite and Arab tribes finding themselves in the rather odd position of wanting to support that position, of, of wanting to support the ideological claim that in fact, yes, it's true that, well, look at the learned people, meaning Christians and Jews, uh, the, the people who are lettered, people who are actually literate, they say that the prophet can, be, can only be an Israelite, and so it is clearly, this is a pretender, this is a false guy, um, etc., and so on and so forth. And it makes perfect sense because we have reports of smaller, much smaller Christian um, tribes or families. I mean, the tribes, you know, could be a huge clan size or a very small uh, rather insignificant tribe in terms of power politics. But we have reports that after bed there are there is enough curiosity that tribes send either a delegation to Medina or attempt to find out what this man is saying and especially after Surat al-Baqarah came and said responded and um uh, refuted much of the claims of the lettered people, the Israelites, about being chosen people and about a prophet having necessarily to be the progeny of Isaac. And Arabs, including Christian Arabs, started say, saying, well, this is interesting, so a prophet could be the progeny of Ismail. Well, you know, the Meccans have been honoring the Kaaba for a long time because they claim this is uh, the, the, the structure built by Ibrahim and Ismail. So it's as if people noticed for the first time the rather contradiction in saying, in the Meccans saying, we honor the Kaaba because this is what Ismail and Ibrahim built, but we accept the Jewish position that a prophet can only be an Israelite and not an Arab, you know, i.e. not a descendant of Ismail and Ibrahim. Is that point clear? Everyone get it? Okay. So this is, of course, we now sitting where we are, we often lose sight of the important historical, the nuances of historical moments. And this is one of those important historical moments, is Arab tribes starting to talk about the inconsistency, the contradiction in the, in the Meccan position, and to start talking about the Quranic refutation 
of it cho the chosen people, and so on and so forth. And so it is plausible, in my view, that Najran sent a delegation much earlier than is reported. And if so, if I'm correct about this, and as I said, you know, I can be convinced otherwise because this is, uh, these, these types of scholarly issues can be investigated by, it's just that, it, you know, if we were European historians, I'm sure there would have been tons of published works about this point. But because we're, you know, Muslims don't really, care about their history, uh, there's, there's nothing, or there's very little. But if so, then that would mean that the totality of Surat Al-Umran was revealed much earlier than many of the sources say. In both cases, whether it was one half revealed, second half revealed early and first half revealed late and then united, or whether the entire surah is revealed much earlier as I think, um, in both cases, we deal with the same issue of thematic unity. That doesn't change the fact, but... Um, there are many also indications in the very content of Surat Al-Amran that uh, would seem to point to a single to, to a time of revelation that is that is close that to to, that, to to sort of that seem to make us doubt this idea that a first half that is revealed much later. And you will see, inshallah, why, why this is an important point. Al-Umran then yeah, Grace um, yeah, Grace Wright, I, I was sort of chanting last night before I went to bed. If only Muslims knew. Um, because Al-Umran is even at a personal level is uh, I um, I always fall short of what Surat Al-Umran teaches personally I always feel like I a, a deep sense of guilt and remorse because I always fall short but that is the point of an ethical text, right? An ethical text challenges you. And an ethical text is supposed to tell you about a standard that you diligently work towards. A, a, an ethical text doesn't set a low, the lowest common denominator. It, it tells you what ought to be. Okay. 
So let's take a deep breath because it's going to be, inshallah, a fascinating ride. Although Al Amran is 200 verses from beginning to end, inshallah, as I will show you, from beginning to end, it is like a symphonic performance, a lesson that grabs you from the very beginning, takes you through various stages, and then delivers you to the end. And what it demands is sustained attention. And you, 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 if you drop one part of the lesson, the whole ceases to work. You can't take a portion at, out of context. And you can't take some and leave the rest. It is an entire comprehensive moral lesson. Educating those who are challenged, those who are defeated, those who feel broken, those who have experienced a serious letdown in their affairs. So it begins with these letters that grab our attention. Allahu la ilaha illa huwa al qayyum. نزل عليك الكتاب بالحق مصدقا لما بين يديه وأنزل التوراة والإنجيل من قبل هدى للناس وأنزل الفرقان إن الذين كفروا بآيات الله لهم عذاب شديد والله عزيز ذو انتقام إن الله لا يخفى عليه شيء في الأرض ولا في السماء هو الذي يصوركم في الأرحام كيف يشاء لا إله إلا هو العزيز الحكيم. So the opening these six verses again as we see in the Quran repeatedly a confirmation that it is the same message, the same God, fair to that deity as the king, al-malik, or aban al-ladhi fi al-sama' our father who is in heaven, it is the same core message which in much of the ideological battle is about the legacy of the Prophet Ibrahim and to say this is the, the, the same God, same message repeatedly and a message 
that is guidance and Furqan, a message that is guidance and that differentiates falsehood from truth, differentiates between what is in a fundamental and basic way, what is moral and immoral, what is good and what is bad, what is hasan and what is qabiyah. And that all that transpires in the heavens or on earth is in eyes, in, is in God's full sight and within God's full knowledge. And that even the most, from the, the, the biggest detail to the smallest detail, like the formation of a fetus is per God's will. And right after that, Al-Umran takes you to one of what becomes a if you will, a constitutional interpretive principle. The ayat muhkamat and ayat mutashabihat. So this is verse 7. Huwa alladhi anzala alayka al-kitaba minhu ayatul muhkamat. Hunna ummu al-kitab. Wa ukharu mutashabihat. فَأَمَّا الَّذِينَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ زَيْغٌ فَيَتَّبِعُونَ مَا تَشَابَهَ مِنْهُ ابْتِغَاءَ الْفِتْنَةِ وَابْتِغَاءَ تَأْوِيلِهِ وَمَا يَعْلَمُ تَأْوِيلُهُ إِلَّا اللَّهِ وَالرَّاسِخُونَ فِي الْعِلْمِ يَقُولُونَ آمَنَّا بِهِ كُلٌّ مِنْ عِنْدِ رَبِّنَا وَمَا يَذَّكَّرُ إِلَّا أُولُو الْأَلْبَابِ So, here we pause with seven because Ayat Muhkamat normally is translated as clear verses and Mutashabihat as allegorical or metaphorical or um, um, verses that are more uh, obscure or more vague. And Quranic interpreters took this and said, well, you know, there are verses in which the Arabic is decisively literal and clear. Um, and the more the verse is articulating a positivistic hukm, uh, a positivistic command or law, the more it is muhkam, because the more it, it, the, the meaning appears to be clear. So a, a, the typical example that would be given of mutashabih is like the alif lam mim itself. The, these letters at the beginning of the surah that don't have a clear meaning, and that and that a clear example of muhkam is any ayah that tells you something very specific and concrete, whether about divorce or inheritance or what, what not. 
Now, what sways them in this approach to this ayah is that the belief that what the Quran was alluding to is the tendency of for of of Jews and Christians to take liberties in explaining in interpreting the text. So although Jesus for instance doesn't claim in the New Testament doesn't claim uh, to be a deity, but taking various things that Jesus says as an indication of Jesus' div divinity. Um, and, and they would point to that as clear evidence of the type of mutashabih, the, the type of uh, um, allegorical interpretation that the Quran is condemning. Or in the chapter Ezra in the Old Testament uh, in Al-Aziz, the attempts by, or the, the in some Jewish sects, especially among, um, you know, that's a, that's a big scholarly issue, but anyway, the, the attempts to read certain passages in, in ways that then you could extract from the idea of either a, a chosen people or uh, a, a, a trinity and so on. And say, well, this is, this is an example of mutashabih. But the, the issue though is known as the expression Hunna Ummul Kitab that the Muhkamat are Ummul Kitab, meaning the heart of the book. And when you say that that expression Ummul Shay it's like saying it is the heart and soul of something, saying that this is the, 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 the essence of it, the heart of it. And it, this expression was used in Arabic before the Quran, and we find it in pre-Islamic poetry, and it's always used in that sense that it is the essence of a thing. So, that then especially among the among certain interpretive schools the tendency to do something that's rather very curious and that is to focus on verses that can um Verses that arguably there can be no disagreement as to what they mean. And say, well, these are the heart and soul of the book. So, la ilaha illallah, there is no God but God. Arguably that would be 
an example of that. But then what do you do with something that, for instance, it says, إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَأْمُرُ بِالْعَدْلِ وَالْإِحْسَانِ That Allah commands you to do justice and do good. Or that Allah commands you to be kind to your relatives. Well, the meaning is clear. But the application of the meaning which can withstand a great deal of disagreement and a great deal of pluralistic interpretations. So you might say, well, what is just is this. I might say what is just is that. And the tendency among Quranic interpreters was to then say, well, not be, well, being quite reluctant to call these mutashabihat, because they're not allegorical. The command to do justice is not allegorical. But to say because of the, the application of the meaning withstands a great deal of diversity in interpretation, to then skip that and say, well, these are not what is what is intended by Ummul Kitab. This is not what is intended by the heart of the, the book, the soul of the book. And to then focus on verses that arguably have a very literal meaning to say, well, these are the ones that are the heart and soul, core of, to the book. So you end up with a rather odd result, right? The odd result is, so what is heart, the heart and soul of the Quran? And you would point to verses, for instance, on inheritance or on talaq. And you make that the heart and soul of the Quran. But that is in clear conflict with the very concept of what is usually intended by Umm al-Kitab when you say something is the heart and soul of a thing. Because the heart and soul of the thing is the essential and core message of a thing. This is precisely why I think and some Scholars in the modern age, like Muhammad Abdul, have suggested the same thing. But, and, and I think they, they, they were correct in that I think the muhkamat and mutashabihat is not necessarily exclusively a reference to what is allegorical and what is literal. The muhkamat and mutashabihat must be understood in the context of the message of Surat Al-Umran, of the totality of Surat Al-Umran. What is Al-Umran telling us? And as we'll see, inshallah, what Al-Umran is telling us is some basic foundational constitutional principles that are transcendent, that don't vary 
with, in terms of the, the, the moral principles of, don't vary with changing historical circumstance and are not, un, do not need to be understood contextually. In Surah Al-Baqarah, we saw a number of treatments that cannot be understood unless you understood, you can't understand what the Quran really is talking about unless you understood the historical circumstance of the revelation. Unless you understood what the conversation is about. I believe that these are the mutashabihat. The mutashabihat are the parts of the Quran that are revealed in response to unfolding, particular unfolding events and, as I said, present you with law as a metaphor. It's an example of how to deal with a problem. The Tashabu here is numerous. The tashabu, the, the the ambiguity here is, or not ambiguity because it the, but the 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 ways that it is not core and constitutional is numerous because it is, in its very dynamic metaphoric, and it's very dynamic. It's supposed to educate you as to how to deal with the problem. It, the 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 solution presented itself is temporal. It cannot, it's not eternal. And it leaves quite a great deal of room for people to argue if they lose sight of the basic organizing principles, as Surah Al-Umran will show us. So, the muhkamat hunna ummul kitab the, the, the mother of the book, is a reference to the basic ethical principles, as all Al-Umran will show us, that Al-Umran itself educates us about, the basic fundamental foundational ethical principles. The fact that you can, that they, you can, there could be quite a bit of disagreement as to how to apply these principles doesn't make them any less muhkam. So if you say, you know, you have the, the right to free speech, the fact that we can all disagree about, you know, this case, whether, you know, here the there's a compelling state interest, no compelling state interest, whether this is an example of protected speech, not protected speech, whether, you know, that doesn't in any way change the fact that free speech, the principle of free speech, is a muhtam. It's a foundational principle. Or, you know, imagine due process. What, you, we can have all types of disagreements about what, or what cruel and unusual punishment, prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. We can have all types of disagreements in, in applying the principle, but that doesn't make it any less muhkam. 
this understanding, if, you, if you're versed in the Islamic tradition, you know that this is revolutionary. Because it effectively then says, where do you go wrong? You go wrong when you lose sight of the foundational core principles, as Al-Umran itself will teach us, the foundational core principles of the Quran, these basic moral ethical principles that human beings must go back to again and again and again. And the mutashabih are things that vary by time and circumstance. The mutashabih are things that were revealed to an ongoing, unfolding process, addressing these, uh, this unfolding process. So for instance, in the old traditional way of approaching things, Zihar is mentioned in the Quran. And Quranic interpreters would come and say, well, the, what the Quran says about al-Muzahara is, Zihar is the old oath where a husband would tell a wife, you are like my, my, my mother to me. And uh, by this, in pre-Islamic Arabia, that was a divorce. The Quran comes and says that this is not a divorce. And so they would point to the law on Zihar as an example of Mutashabih. Uh, sorry, as an example of Muhtam. But that doesn't make sense because you would need to know a great deal about the practice of Zihar and what is the the principle that you extract from the Quranic refusal to recognize the har as a divorce, and what the moral principles that you can extract from that, and that is the mutashabah in, in what I'm espousing. Why is it mutashabah? Because you can bring 10 scholars, and the, the 10 scholars can all have 10 different opinions about precisely the mechanics of Zihar, the historical circumstances of Zihar, the how do we then transform, because no one does Zihar in the modern age anymore. I've never heard of someone doing the Zihar procedure. But does this mean it's a dead letter? Well, it's a dead letter if you allow it to be. But if you study it as law, as an anecdote, then you can extract the moral principle that the, from what the Quran teaches about Zihar. Okay, but notice the reminder in the Quran. وَمَا يَعْلَمُ تَأْوِيلَهُ إِلَّا اللَّهُ وَالرَّاسِخُونَ فِي الْعِلْمِ يَقُولُونَ آمَنَّا كُلٌّ مِنْ عِنْدِ رَبِّنَا That those who are الرَّاسِخُونَ فِي الْعِلْمِ Those who are anchored in knowledge, those who dedicate themselves to studying the Qur'an, recognize that whether you are talking about the mutashabih or the muhtam, 
that it's all from God. And I read this as the Quran flagging the importance of not ignoring either the Muhtam, Ummuk Kitab, the foundational, the core, or the Mutashabih, the, the metaphorical and allegorical, or the, in my language, the contextual in response to historical circumstance. So, for instance, there is a scholar called Abdullah Naim who follows his teacher uh, Taha, Mahmoud Ali Taha, in saying that the Medinian Quran is abrogated. This is an example, this approach, in saying that, well, the Meccan Quran is relevant, but the Medinian Quran is just abrogated, is an example of precisely what this ayah tells us not to do. Why? Because you've excluded all the contextual. You're saying, oh, the, oh, the entire Quran of Medina is just contextual, so just forget it. No, those who are anchored in knowledge say, no, it's all from God. And we must study it all, both the Muhkam and the Mutashabih. And we must learn from it all. But never lose the sight, never lose the sight, never lose sight that there are constitutional, foundational, prevailing countervailing principles that guide the mutashabih. The muhkam guides the mutashabih. So in, in, to put it very bluntly to you, it is entirely relevant. If the Quran says that God commands al-adl wal-ihsan, justice and goodness, is entirely relevant inquiry to always ask whether the mutashabih of the law, that these principles that are not constitutional, leads to a situation that is empirically unjust, and to present that claim. In other words, the, the, the constitutional principles will always interrogate the secondary principles and the principles of application and we cannot ever be in a situation which we are in fact what we've done with the Quran in a situation where we simply say well you know who knows what justice means who knows what goodness means and we just ignore it and then you know, subhanAllah, it's just even the minutest expressions. Only those, Ulul Albab means those who have reason, have an intellect. So Allah is telling you, only those with real intellects will understand this. We pass over this. We pass this all, over this all the time. We're accustomed as Muslims to pass over every time that Allah tells us that only people with proper insight or people with proper intellect will comprehend this. 
Allah is telling, is reminding us of the remarkable prize that Allah has given us, that intellect. And saying, well, only those who are, and for me, proper intellect, proper insight, is not just a matter of taqwa. It's, as we said in many times before, it's taqwa plus, meaning those who've actually educated, those who are actually knowledgeable enough in the epistemology, in the system of knowledge of their day and age. So someone who has never read anything beyond Plato or never read anything beyond Socrates and comes and says, I am among Ulul al-Bab. In this day and age, sorry, no, you're not. Because so much has happened since Socrates. So much. Once upon a time, mastering Aristotelian logic made you Ulul al-Bab. Aristotle was the golden standard. Al-Mu'allim al-Kabir, as the Mu'allim al-Akbar, as he used to call him in the Islamic tradition, the great teacher. Aristotle. Today, Aristotle is still relevant, but that's only the beginning of the journey. So, Ulul al-Bab. Now, what if you don't have Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, you have nothing beyond Arabic grammar and maybe philology of the Arabic language and maybe a good memory for some hadith and Quran, then there is no chance that you are going to comprehend al-muhkam al-mutashabah. Because you don't have even the intellectual language to give effect, to give life to the text of the Quran in this day and age. You have to have the intellectual language to give life to a text. Uh, anyway, Muhammad just says that notes that those who are deeply rooted in knowledge, so on. Okay. رَبَّنَا لَا تُضِغْ قُلُوبَنَا بَعْدَ إِذْ هَدَيْتَنَا وَهَبْ لَنَا مِنْ لَدُنْكَ رَحْمَةِ إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ الْوَهَّابِ رَبَّنَا إِنَّكَ جَامِعُ النَّاسِ لِيَوْمٍ لَا رَيْبَ فِيهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُخْلِفُ الْمِعَادِ In 6 and 7 Because people here give me a hard time anytime I skip anything. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to go back to this because I'm, I'm going to feel guilty about it later. Um, in the tradition, this is about the muhkam and mutashabih. So go back to the muhkam and mutashabih for a second again. Uh, as we said, Verse 7. In the tradition, 
scholars would often say that an example of the mutashabih is an-nasikh wal-mansukh, what is abrogated. What they never noticed, though, is by saying that, they are conceding exactly the position that I am espousing. That by saying that an-nasikh wal-mansukh, the, abrogate, the abrogated and, and abrogating is an example of the mutashabih. Effectively, what they're saying is that an example of the mutashabih is what changes. But they would always say, effectively, that the abrogated is mutashabih, but the abrogating is muhkam. But methodologically, what you are recognizing is what is in response to contextual circumstances in the Quran is mutashabih. Although they never, never theoretically been able to carry that realization to the position that I am espousing. Furthermore, Ibn Abbas, among the very early authorities in the Quran, said, Al-Mutashabih ma la yu'mal alayh. What is Mutashabih in the Quran? He said, Things in the Quran la yu'mal alayh that you cannot implement. Well, that begs the question, why can't I implement it? He's clearly pointing here to the idea of what is historically becomes problematic to implement. So what I'm saying is, is that even if you look in the classical tradition, because I know that you know there will be many of the imam types who will be having fits once you say to them that the mutashabih is what is contextual and historical and the muhkam is what is constitutional, they will have a fit. They'll tell you, no, no, everyone knows that what a mutashabih is just what's unclear in meaning, like alif lam mim, but the muhkam, and some even go as far as, I've heard this from imams in the United oh, 99% of the Quran is muhkam. This is, you know, classic literalist um, um, uh, you know, very, very um, in terms of schools of construction or interpretation, a very literalist approach that, well, you know, as long as you can understand the plain, plain words, then it's muhkam. Uh, that's just... But within the folds of the Islamic tradition itself, those who said that al-mutashabih is what is abrogated in the Quran, those who, like Ibn Abbas, who said 
is an example of the mutashabih. We're recognizing that there are parts of the Quran that set foundational principles and parts of the Quran that is responding to an actual unfolding historical events. And that we must be able, those rooted in knowledge, must be able to study the details and understand the difference between the two. Um, so for instance, you know, Ibn Abbas, that same person, says that contrary to some of what a lot of modern Muslims say, 99% of the Quran is muhkam, Ibn Abbas said that only 30 verses of the Quran are muhkam. I don't agree with that. I mean, if he said that, it's reported that he said that. But, or others said only 100 verses in the Quran is muhkam. I, I don't think the point is to, to number how many verses are muhkam, but to understand in each surah, as we'll do inshallah in Ali Imran, what the foundational principles that Allah is teaching to us. And then what are the issues where Allah are giving us examples of application of these principles? Um, Yeah, God, this is conscience, having a conscience is to legitimate esoteric interpretations that seem to do violence to the text. In other words, you're twisting the arm of the text to come up with esoteric interpretations. But much of what is said about twisting the arm of the text for esoteric interpretations as what Allah condemns applies with equal force to those who use the text of the Quran opportunistically. Think of the ethics of interpretation. Those who recognize what they desire and then work backwards from what they desire to the text of the Qur'an are abusing the text of the Qur'an in very much the same way as those who are corrupt, who Quran, meaning they, they are not recognizing an integrity to the text 
and an integrity to the author of the text, but effectively replacing their own um, ego to the integrity of the author of the text. So they don't really think very much about God as a, a real author with a real intentionality, but rather their intentionality is what matters. And as long as they can find words to sustain their intentionality, then it's a go. That's not a minor point, people. This is what has been the murder of the Quran in the modern age. It's done by, for misogynistic reasons, it's done for power reasons, it's done by all types of mullahs and imams and shiuch all around the Muslim world all the time, every day, to hunt the territory of the Quran to find things that can feed the hunger of your ego is precisely what abusing the text of the Quran is. Rather than any systematic, principled study of the Quran that recognizes the intentionality of God as the authoritative standard, no one claims that they, can, they, 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 they perfectly realize that intentionality. Obviously not. But it is the, the humility before that intentionality and the not taking, not the, the exactly sort of like hunting the, the territory of the Quran for verses you can pray on. Um, and there are many ahadiths from the Prophet والسلام, uh, about jidal for Quran. So in one of these ahadiths, for instance, the, 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 the Prophet hears uh, some Muslims in Medina, they're arguing about the meaning of a, of a verse, and then he says, um, الَّذِينَ يُجَادِلُونَ فِي الْقُرْآنِ فَاحْذَرْهُمْ الَّذِينَ يُجَادِلُونَ فِيهِ I'm missing a word, but anyway. That, those who argue pointlessly about... And الجدال here... It is not, of course, as you'll find in a lot of the, the tradition itself, it says, it, 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 it's, it doesn't, it's not saying that valid principle disagreements are condemned, but it's this, exactly this exploitation, this egoistic exploitation of the text of the Quran in order to validate um, what you opportunistically wish to validate. One final point. Um, there is a hadith where the Prophet ﷺ is asked 
about this verse. And he is specifically asked about what the meaning of a rasikhuna fil ilm is. What those who are rooted in knowledge or those who are deeply knowledgeable are. And the, 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 the hadith has, is reported by a wide number of people and it has slight differences, variations, but the core of it is the same. Um, and I always thought that the, that the description of the, the Prophet to what الرَّاسِخُونَ فِي الْعِلْمِ has always caught my attention. So he says, مَنْ بَرَّتْ يَمِينُهُ وَصَدَقَ لِسَانُهُ وَاسْتَقَامَ قَلْبُهُ وَعَثَّ بَطْنُهُ وَفَرْجُهُ So he starts listing prerequisites or conditions for those who can be rooted in knowledge. And what he starts out with is not how much they've read. That comes later. But he starts with something completely different. And so who barrat yamino who never lie and never never falsely take an oath never swear falsely and never violate a promise if they promise they deliver and they never lie and their hearts are pure. So they're not jealous, they're not envious, they're not petty, they're not vindictive, they're not taken, they don't, you know, take into bouts of anger. Um, and they're not covetous. They don't covet food and luxury. And they're not, uh, um, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Farzo um, means, and they're also chaste. They're sexually chaste. They don't ever forget any. Yeah, and then he starts, then the, the, the tradition goes on to those who study the Quran night and day and so on. But it is, notice the approach to, to, to the deeply rooted knowledge. It starts with personal traits, what we're talking about before with Surah Al-Baqarah. It starts with your ethics as a human being. And subhanAllah, I mean, at this point, I, uh, life has taught me, the, you know, my, maybe when I was much younger, I, I used to wonder, well, you know, but aren't there people who are truly knowledgeable without, you know, I, I read about 
Western scholars who, you know, were horrible human beings, but were learned scholars. But that's not a rasikhuna fil ilm. To be truly learned, it's, it's a total ethical package. You might have a lot of knowledge about a specific issue, but you're not a truly learned human being. Um, Same thing when, you know, someone says uh, to me, oh, brother such and such, you know, he's, a, he's very knowledgeable about religion, but, you know, you can't count on any promise he gives you. And I'm like, always oh, just... Then how, is the, how are they knowledgeable about religion? Don't tell me they're very knowledgeable about religion. Oh, they're very knowledgeable about religion, but they marry and divorce women left and right. They're very knowledgeable about religion, but they, you know, you can't trust them about this. That's not, you know, this is not a, a mathematics or physics or, you know, this is at core a field of ethics. To be knowledgeable about ethics, you must embody the ethics that you are knowledgeable about. It, it is just, you can't, you, you can't segment it. This is like the preface to Surat Ali Umran. And then Ali Umran immediately starts talking about قَدْ قَيَنَ لَكُمْ آيَةٌ فِي فِئَتَيْنِ الْتَقَطَى this is now number 13. There is a lesson for you about two warring groups assigned in two hosts, two groups that met in battle. One fighting in God's cause and the other denying God. Remember I told you that there are indications in Ali Amran itself that seem to challenge the argument that Ali Amran, the first half, was revealed much later and that the second half was revealed earlier. And in fact, the thematic unity of Ali Amran, and this is among, notice, before it even starts talking about Christians and Jews, it, it alerts us to what will come much later in the surah about the lesson of the battle of Uhud. And, and of course, some, some uh, interpreters said, well, no, verse 13 refers to the battle of Badr. And But even if it does refer to battle of bed, even if, still, you, you have to look at the structure of the entire surah. So even before we start talking in addressing the concerns of so-called the delegation of Najran or Waf Najran, it deals with the theme that is central to Surat al-Umran itself. So, there are 
two hosts and one is fighting for a cause, the other is fighting for whatever, its own. Uh, uh, now, although there is a there is a slight the 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 Arabic here is um, it is an entry. Okay. يَرَوْنَهُمْ مِثْلَيْهِمْ رَأْيَ الْعَيْنِ This expression. Interpreters disagreed. Some said that what it's saying is that Muslims, the Muslim force, saw its enemy and saw that it is twice its number. That the their enemies are a much larger force, but that God comforted them and gave them succor and calmed them down. And this is probably the this is the interpretation that Muhammad Assas chooses. So he translates it as one host fighting in God's cause and the other denying God with their own eyes, the former, the Muslim host saw the others as twice their own number, but God strengthens with God's succor whom God wills. In this, behold, there is indeed a lesson for all who have eyes to see. So this is the interpretation that Muhammad Asad chose. The other interpretation is that, no, in fact, what it's saying is, is that God intervened to affect Muslims' subjective perception of their enemies so that they, in fact, did not notice that their enemies are much larger than they are, or much bigger than they are. In either case, I don't think it really matters because it starts out by telling you there is a lesson here, and the lesson is in as you are going to struggle, and I in the struggle that it's talking about in this context is a military struggle. But as we will see, it will take us from a military struggle to a very non-military example, and. The reason, as we will see in Ali Omran, is that the point is the struggle itself. Not whether it's military or not. But that to understand that you, it is up to you, you can either confront the challenges with in, of life with a cause and that cause vested in God. And then you have a special relationship with God. And Ali Omran will tell us a lot about the special relationship. Or you can choose the material objective reality. 
with non-divine intervention. Not divine intervention in terms of the miraculous, because as we will see in Al-Umran, this turns out to be a very critical point. But in divine intervention in terms of your subjective perception of the events. Of how what subjectively molds you. And how you respond at an ethical level to the events and the challenges and the defeats and the disappointments that are going to confront you. Okay. So, this is precisely why a lot of the, the Mufassirun, you know, say, oh, well, okay, 13 refers to Battle of Badr and 14 refers to a very different topic, and that is how human beings love material things. No, it is the same topic. It's telling you that the, the issue as to why often people in their struggles are not allied to God, not attuned to God, and in, quite often, in my opinion, even falsely attuned to God, is precisely what 14 says. Zuyina linnasi hubbu shahawat min al-nisa wal-banin wal-qanatir al-muqantara min al-zahab wal-fidda wal-khayl al-musawama wal-an'am wal-harth thalika mata'u al-dunya wallahu indahu khusnu al-ma'ab قُلْ أَوْنْبِئُكُمْ بِخَيْرٍ مِنْ ذَلِكُمْ لِلَّذِينَ اتَّقَوْا عِنْدَ رَبِّهِمْ جَنَّاتٌ تَجْرِي مِنْ تَحْتِهَا الْأَنْهَارُ خَالِدِينَ فِيهَا وَأَزْوَاجٌ مُطَهَّرَةٌ وَرِضْوَانٌ مِنَ اللَّهِ وَاللَّهُ بَصِيرٌ بِالْعِبَادِ In these challenges, the constant the constant challenge, the constant difficulty, is that human beings, their hearts, and eventually their souls, are tied to the material pleasures of things. Material pleasures, property, money, women, in the case of, or men, doesn't matter, uh, children, possessions. Gold, silver, horses, material things. But once again, Allah comes and says, but then there are those that might understand, or the invitation is for you to understand, that what is what Allah has, or what is with Allah, is better than all of that. To, set, to transcend these, if your struggle is for the material 
so will be your spiritual state. But if your struggle is for something else, then it's a completely different equation. Now, again, we pass over they deserve such a long pause and long reflection. So 15, which says, shall I tell you what is better than all of this? What is better than all of this is Rudwanun min Allah. Is Allah's acceptance is salvation from Allah and now in describing because then you might say well okay but how do we be in the state and immediately Allah responds to this and says الذين يقولون ربنا إننا آمنا فاغفر لنا ذنوبنا وقنا عذاب النار الصابرين والصادقين والقانتين والمنفقين والمستغفرين بالأصحار. In amazingly brief but powerful description. So it starts out with those who ask Allah for forgiveness. So first is that you are among those who is constantly examining the self, catching your own mistakes, and asking Allah to forgive you for your own mistakes. But then, right after that, this is 17. As-sabirin, those who are patient in adversity, as-sadiqin, true to their word, and truly devout and who spend in God's way and pray for forgiveness from their innermost hearts. So, as-sabirin, those who are patient in adversity, as-sadiqin, those who are truthful in their affairs. Wal-qanitin, al-qunut, I guess this is what he translates, um, what Muhammad Asad translates as, um, what, what is it? Yeah, he tra translates it as truly devout. Aqqanut is not just being truly devout. It, it, Aqqanut is those who are ever conscious of God. A state of Qunut is sort of what Grace was talking about earlier, is that you are ever conscious that your, your companion is God. That state of companionship in God and with God. When um, munfiqeen which Allah always underscores those who spend. So you, you're not, and as, as, as Surah Al-Amrata, 
It is a lost cause unless you are able to part with your material. If you covet your material possessions to yourself, then don't complain about not feeling God's companionship. It's a dead end. Now here, al-mustaghfirina bil-ashar is a mental image. Um, and the image that is those who are, it's, the, the point is not a period of time in the day, but the point is that those who lose sleep, who exert themselves in spending time with Allah. So al-istighfar al-ashar is someone sitting at the break of dawn supplicating God. So right away it's like telling you being with God or in the cause of God is not just talk. It's a state of being and it is not just performing obligations. But it is a state of perseverance, being patient, which is very difficult. Not complaining, not giving up, and being steadfast, being truthful, truthful with others and with itself, being ever conscious of God's companionship, spending in God's way, and investing the time in supplication and worship. And then, Allah tells you, so remind the in Dina in the So it starts out what with the raising the theme that it will return to those who struggle in God's cause. What is required? Laying that out and then tells you that the only religion that Allah it's not just saying that it's because a lot of Muslim theologians say, you know took this as well God is saying that Islam is the only valid religion but as we all see what what it's saying that is that the only religion that Allah has ever decreed to human beings is the religion of Islam 
before from before the Prophet Muhammad, from the very beginning till the Prophet Muhammad and onwards. Meaning it is precisely the religion of a sabr wa sidq wa qunut wal infaq wal istighfar. It is precisely their religion in which you surrender to this relationship with Allah. The relationship of perseverance and steadfastness, the relationship of qunut, the relationship of being a sadiq, as in, in the, the, the word sadiq in the Hebrew tradition is actually quite important for who qualifies as a sadiq. But anyway, being a sadiq, being a truthful human being with the self and with others. And that is precisely why it's telling you then to the extent that people have forgotten that it is not about a chosen people. It is not about a set of strict dietary laws as Surah Al-Amran will talk about later and Surah Al-Baqarah actually mentioned. It is not about burnt offerings as the Jews allege that you can't have a real prophet of God unless that, God, that prophet offered burnt offerings to God. It is not about dying, salvation by someone dying for your sins on the cross. It is always about and always has been about Islam. And Islam in the sense of complete God consciousness. And to the extent that people have forgotten this, it is because of the disagreements that they fell into for reasons that had nothing to do with the original message. That is precisely بَغِيًا بَيْنَهُمْ مُخْتَلَفَ الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْكِتَابِ إِلَّا مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا جَاءَهُمْ الْعِلْمِ بَغِيًا بَيْنَهُمْ So, and those who were vouchsafed the revelation aforetime took out of mutual jealousy to divergent views to on this point. Only after knowledge thereof have come unto them. Meaning that after they received the initial revelation, the pure original revelation, divert. Now, of course, as several commentators have said about Al Amran, everything that Allah says about Al Kitab is intended as a warning to Muslims not to follow suit. So, yes, Allah is talking about that after they received the ilm, then they became, they started disagreeing among themselves. In other words, they corrupted the message. But this is a warning. The message here is to Muslims. Beware that after receiving the true message of Islam, that you corrupt your religion by turning it into about something else. 
other than the true muhkam ummu kitab message do you see it it's a coherent flow no chunks no segmented parts it's a coherent flow if you understand the quran and you understand it with your spirit your heart and your soul you understand the way Allah is talking to you. And this is precisely why then Allah says, فَإِنْ حَجُّكَ فَقُلْ أَسْلَمْتُ وَجْهِ لِلَّهِ وَمَنِ اتَّبَعْنِي وَقُلْ لِلَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْكِتَابِ وَالْأُمِّيِّينَ أَسْلَمْتُمْ فَإِنْ أَسْلَمُوا فَقَدْ اهْتَدَوْا وَإِن تَوَلَّوْا فَإِنَّمَا عَلَيْكَ الْبَلَاغُ وَاللَّهُ بَصِيرٌ بِالْعِبَادِ So in 20, this is precisely why then it says to the Prophet ﷺ, I know that they debate you. I know that they are arguing with you. This is precisely what I was saying earlier, that the buzz was around after Surah Al-Baqarah and after Badr. And suddenly now, Muslims have the attention of all the marginalized Christians in Arabia who, you know, had thought that they're out of the game for a long time. And the only way that they can be a part of the game is to go join the Byzantines or well, the Byzantines, if they were Christian, it was the Byzantines, or the Jewish groups. But so now they are, in fact, there is an actual, and we have many reports about the arguments that Muslims are being confronted with. And come and say, come and say yes, okay, fine, well, th th this is a new prophet, but how could a new prophet not honor our burnt offerings? Wh which, as we will see, is a big deal, uh, or was a big deal among Jewish tribes. Uh, or how can new new prophet ignore this aspect or that aspect? Bring them back to the Ummu Kitab, to the Ayat Muhkamah. Bring them back to the core. So if they argue with you, say, listen, this was and always has been and is about Islam. Islam, as we said, al-istighfar, al-sabr, al-sidq, al-qunud, all these qualities that, that compromise what surrender is. And we have turned our gaze toward our, towards our Lord. Aslam to meaning that we've turned our gaze to our Lord. And then say to Ut and Ladina Utukitel, the people of the book, Well Umiyin in Arabia, as I've pointed out in the past couple of times, there was a certain Arabs were not just illiterate, but they were sort of proud of their illiteracy. 
literacy they attributed or they associated with Jews and Christians. So when the Quran says, tell the literate ones, meaning Jews and Christians, and tell Al-Ummiyin, the unliterate ones, meaning Arabs who are not Jews and Christians, are you going to join me in this fundamental product of Islam, of surrendering to God? And if you do, that's, pre that's precisely what Huda is. And if they turn away, then all that is expected of you is balag, is to communicate the message. I, it never gets old. The fact that a text in that time, under these circumstances, when you know, Muslims are just such a it's such a fresh thing, and this is right after they just lost a major battle, and the Quran is consistently telling the Prophet, as we will see even more so in Ali Omran, that your job is just to communicate the message, and that's it. A, 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 a remarkable ethical education if you pay attention to the dynamics. Okay. Then comes and sounding a theme that is very biblical and says those who kill their prophets and those nations, people who kill their prophets or kill those who command justice, يَأْمُرُونَ بِالْقِسْتِ مِنَ النَّاسِ So, the, those are truly, as, as Ali Omran will set out completely, that those are the forsaken ones. Now, we pause here for a second, because kill the prophets is a double illusion. It, it refers to two things. The biblical theme of the criticism of the Israelites and their claim to be a chosen people, while being a people who consistently targeted prophets and reformers because among the, the privileged Pharisee class, didn't treat reformers who arose among the Israelites who criticized the power politics of the Pharisees. Uh, and, and that's why, they, you know, groups like the Essene sects break off and they go into isolation. 
The, the Pharisees is a privileged clergy, cler, clerical class. They're a clergy of privilege. And they treat reformers and prophets very unkindly. And the obvious point that we carries over from Surah Al-Baqarah that you cannot be a chosen people or a godly people if this is what you do with those who call you to your conscience. Now, of course, note, and again, I'll remind you, I've done this before, but I'm going to do it again um, uh, because of just how clueless Muslims are and and the, the, the effects of Islamophobia in this age. The theme about the Israelites killing reformers or persecuting reformers and prophets is not a Quranic theme, it's a biblical theme. So, for instance, Matthew chapter 23, uh, verse 30, says, this is Jesus speaking in Matthew. And so Jesus say, he, he's, Jesus, of course, if you probably, if you don't know, among the, 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 the thing about Jesus is that he was an unrelenting critic of the privileges of the Pharisees. And he was constantly ostracizing the rabbis for the way they are have exploited their privileged position. So Jesus is saying, even so, you also outwardly appear righteous men, that you outwardly appear to be righteous men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Here, here he's talking to the, the rabbinical class in the temple. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. Build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous means you kill the prophets and you kill the righteous. And say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. You claim that it's your fathers who did this, but you won't do it. But therefore, you are witnesses against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge, you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city that you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zachariah, son of Berechia, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar, and so on. J Jesus was not like the image that so many Christians have of him, some meek, you know, uh, demure figure who says, you know, just... Let's all get along. 
Jesus was quite a critic. I mean, you know, we called them vipers and hypocrites, and you're not, and, and he was steadfast in the cause of righteousness. And that's exactly why they targeted him, because he challenged all their privileges. You know, of course, in, in, there are many examples, but in, um, this is from Paul's, the um, Gospel of Paul, the Thessalonians, where, you know, Paul says, for, your, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they do not please God and are contrary to all men. So that theme that the Quran repeats was a carryover from the critique of Jesus against the, the practices of especially the Pharisees. But then that second element that is often ignored, it carry over from Surah Al-Baqarah that a people who persecute those the reformers for justice can never be blessed. So in the Islamic tradition, some of the most beautiful things you, you read, not in Quranic commentaries, but usually in works of theology, is that you want to know whether Allah is with a people or not. See if amongst in that society, that society allows for the existence of those who uphold the cause of justice? Or does that society suppress and snuff out those who uphold the cause of justice? That Can you imagine if Muslims understood the, the, that lesson in the Quran? That it is the right for, for, for advocates for justice, whatever that cause is, as long as it's an, a cause of justice, that their right comes from God, not society, not civil society, not a constitutional document, but God. And the advocates of justice are untouchable. Because if you suppress them, if you arrest them, if you ostracize them, if you silence them, if you kill them off, then you risk God abandoning your entire society. God cleaning God's hands from that society saying, 
you persecute advocates of justice so you're not my people wouldn't it be truly transformative I mean you find various theologians like Ghazali having a passage or like Ibn Qayyim al Juzay or even Ibn Taymiyyah has a very wonderful passage in, in one of his atawa about this ayah and he says that you know uh, that the the, the curse of the Mongols is because Islamic society persecuted advocates of justice and so God sent the curse of the Mongols against them. But it was never systematically developed as, an, as, a, as a central organizing point in Muslim social structures. The right of those who uphold just causes or causes as uh, in, in if you look at my rebellion book where they say that rebels with the ta'wil have a right have all types of different sets of rights that if you're interested you can read the book but and they say a ta'wil is an interpretation and and if it's a claim of having suffered an injustice as a legal matter, that is considered a ta'wil, considered an interpretation. But it is never systematically developed. You can't blame pre-modern Muslims for not doing it, but you can definitely blame modern Muslims for being oblivious towards it. Because, as as you, you see in twenty two, those people who persecute advocates for justice, their cause is lost on this earth and in the hereafter, and they have no victory. The idea that God is going to support them is an absurdity. You know, of course, um, r remarkably, the the there are numerous hadith where the Prophet comments about um, Ayah 20, the Ayahs 21 and 22 uh, saying that أَشَدَّ النَّاسَ عَذَابًا يَوْمُ الْقِيَامَةِ الَّذِينَ يَقْتُلُونَ مَا مَعْنَا or paraphrasing رَجُلًا رَجُلًا قَتَلَ نَبِيًّا أو, أو قَتَلَ رَجُلًا يَأْمُرُ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ That a man who, those who will be in the worst state will, be, will receive the worst punishment in the hereafter who is anyone who kills a prophet or kills someone who يَأْمُرُ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ 
who calls for what is good or enjoins what is good. Those who advocate justice um, which is evidence that an undermined Maruf and Nehra as we will talk about later at, at the heart of it is this notion of Qust and Qust is, is remember that Qust is, is equitable justice it's not formal justice not like Adl, Adl is formal justice Qust is equitable justice Or, you know, what some would call uh, real justice, or, you know, anyway. Okay. So, Alam Tara Ladina Utu Nasiban Mirakitab. This is 23. Um, Muhammad Asad translates, Are though not aware of those who have been granted their share of revelation? They have been called upon to let God's writ be their law and yet some of them turn away from it in their obstinacy simply because they claim the fire will most certainly not touch us for more than a limited number of days and thus the false beliefs which they have invented have in time caused them to betray their faith there is um, in the traditions reports that say um, that Jews in Medina came to the Prophet والسلام, to um, uh, in a case of someone who had committed adultery and that the Prophet applied Jewish law to them by saying that by decreeing stoning and that when the Prophet did so, they turned away and refused to implement the punishment. Um, there, there are, although Suyuti, among others, has defended that as an occasion for revelation, uh, for many different reasons, I have very serious doubts. I have very serious doubts about all the traditions in which Jewish disputants come to the Prophet and say, you know, resolve this case for us. Um, because this is not a case of mediation. Even if it's a case of mediation, it's, it's, it's very suspect. But even but cases were of criminal punishment. The relations between Jewish tribes and Muslims and the Prophet at the time would not have permitted um, 
for Jews to come to the Prophet, not to even apply Islamic law, but to apply Jewish law to them. So the idea that they come to him and say, tell us, you know, apply Jewish law for us, instead of going to their own elders and their own processes, is very ahistorical and just smacks of political dogma. And there are many different political reasons that these types of traditions would have been invented. And part of it is the politics of stoning, that the, the, the defenders of stoning in the Islamic tradition wanted to argue that stoning was a well-anchored punishment in the Torah, in the Old Testament itself. Um, because they were, they were well aware of the Christian attempts or Christian efforts at um, deconstructing stoning as, as most criminal punishments uh, and, and saying that it was abrogated by Jesus and so on. But this is a, a, a complex and a different uh, matter. But there are, so I mean, the, the idea of, of going to the prophet and they're sort of then saying, no, no, we, now that you told us what Jewish law requires, we, we're not gonna apply it, is too theatrical and uh, was too embedded in, in the political disputes that, political slash legal disputes that take place after the death of the Prophet, But notice that the, the text itself, because what it says is, those who have received so they, they have received a revelation. But when but they turn away from God's judgment and their excuse or their argument is that well even if it's a sin that we will be punished that it, we will only be punished for a short period of time so it doesn't matter that you know it's sort of relying on God's forgiveness it's saying it's taking God's forgiveness for granted and we know that in many other traditions that this was a rhetorical point raised by in, in the polemics between Muslims and Jewish tribes not about uh, adultery and stoning, but about the Jewish, the, the resistance to what the Quran said in Surah Al-Baqarah about riba, the prohibition against usury, and the usurious loans, which the because that was an economic institution and it was a well ingrained economic institution in Medina, the attempts at by Muslims to prohibit the economic the usury 
created a lot of friction between Muslims and Jewish tribes. Part of it was sort of a legal argument that Jewish tribes argued that you don't have jurisdiction to prohibit um, usurious loan amongst us because according to the covenant of Medina, your laws apply to you. They don't apply to us. Muslims objected that the economic infrastructure between Jews and Muslims were too intertwined. And so to say, well, we prohibit usury among Muslims, but not among Jewish tribes, it, it's, a, it, it's form over substance. Because in reality, most of your customers are non-Jewish. All the people that you actually lend money out to on the basis of usury. And there were a couple other economically based disputes like that. And I think that these verses refer to this because part of the argument is minimizing the sins. It, it tied into another thing that Ali Omran will deal with later, that in Jewish law, especially Jewish Karite law, which was uh, the, 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 uh, the form of Jewish law in effect in most of Medina, um, the, the Karite sect, was that prohibitions that could normally apply in Jews dealing with one another don't apply in Jews dealing with non-Jews. And this especially uh, applied to economic issues or financial issues, contractual issues. And this created a lot of a lot of friction, that, that idea that, well, Jewish law, when it comes to Gentiles, it, it's um, normal prohibitions of Jewish law do, do not apply. That creates another level of friction, friction. But the polemics that were reported were often Part of the limits was sort of saying, well, we are, as the Quran itself says elsewhere, that we are God's beloved, and God will not, not punish us. So even if it's a technical sin, it is, we are too close to God to punish us. And it is clear from the, the text when that, expression in 24, then it's a reference to that polemic. And that polemic always had central to it were these economic transactional issues that arose. But of course, remember, everything that is in Ali Omran that is directed at Ali Kitab is a warning to Muslims. So, 
as Zamakhshari says, as Al-Razi says, so, you know, that when Allah is pointing the finger and saying, أَلَمْ تَرَى إِلَى الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا نَصِيبًا مِنَ الْكِتَابِ يُدْعَوْنَ إِلَى كِتَابِ اللَّهِ لِيَحْكُمَ بَيْنَهُمْ that they, Those who receive the revelation, and then when it comes to God's book, do you actually play a role in their life? Their attitude is to say, well, God is most forgiving, don't worry about it. Applies with equal force to Muslims. And it should send chills down the spines of modern Muslims because we can't find a better description of the attitude of so modern, so many modern Muslims to God's book than precisely that. I mean, among the, the pains of Ali Amran is that when you see what the Quran actually says about people of the book and its criticism of what they do and then you realize that everything it said about the people of the book now applies with equal measure to Muslims it's really terrifying it's one of the things that makes Ali Amran a very heavy surah for me it's like okay God we're in trouble 25 and don't have you know, I don't intend to do verse by verse, but it's it's very difficult in these Medinian surahs to skip um, uh, and often you have to to, to, to demonstrate the thematic unity in, in 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 an incremental bit by bit way, which is a bit um, challenging. So look at now twenty six. قل اللهم مالك الملك تؤتي الملك من تشاء وتنزع الملك من 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 تشاء وتعز من تشاء وتذل من تشاء بيدك الخير إنك على كل شيء قدير. You talk about آيات that are أم الكتاب محكمات and أم الكتاب. This ayah, by the way, is the dhikr for Ali Umran. But it's the dhikr for so much of our lives. It's the among the verses that is at the very heart of Umm Kitab, the mother of the book. The core realization. And you will see why this is so critical in Ali Umran. As it told you about the image, two hosts facing one another, one in the cause of God, one in the other. And then it tells you about the moral requirements for the host that is with God. And then tells you about what happens when a host, when a group that thinks it is with God, has deviated from God. Then it takes you back and says, but listen, realize that you must understand that Allahumma Malik al-Mulk, that Allah is sovereign over all. 
تؤتي الملك من تشاء وتنزع الملك مما تشاء matters of power victory and loss success and failure ultimately is in Allah's hands and this will be core to the entire message of Surah Al-Umran that you experience a test as Al-Umran will show you you experience a test you experience a loss you experience disappointment but fundamentally being the host that is on God's side is completely surrendering to the realization that it is all in Allah's hands. As Ali Umran itself tells the Prophet as we will see, none of it is in your hands. And we'll come to that. That it directs, it's, Allah tells the Prophet, it's not up to you. It's up to God. Now, this doesn't mean, as some have translated it into, into a message of passiveness and disinterest. Because, after all, it tells you that if you are a society that persecutes those who advocate for justice. And as Ali Umran itself will tell you, that what your moral value less rests in the fact that you enjoin the good and forbid the evil. It will tell you that later. But here, it's the deeper wisdom in knowing that after you try your very best, and you experience loss and you experience disappointment you fully understand that it is not about, about who is the richest who has the most powerful army it is not about who is the most popular it is not about all the material things a deep belief that Allah is the orchestrator the engineer of history. A point that is raised by several among the Marazi and Ghazali and Ibn Arabi between the Prophet Ibrahim and the Prophet Musa is thousand years or more. And between Musa and Isa is, you know, by some say 1300 years, some say 14, some say 1500 years, but it's centuries. Imagine all the people that lived between Musa and Isa. At any Point, you come in the consciousness of the lifespan of a human being and 
what unfolds or what transpires in the world is not even within the realm of imagination. So despair and defeat is irrational if you have belief. And this is core to the message of Surah Al-Umran, as we will see. قُلُ اللَّهُمَّ مَالِكُ الْمُلْكِ تُؤْتِي الْمُلْكَ مَنْ تَشَاءُ You give power to whoever you want. وَتَنْزِعُ الْمُلْكَ مِنْ مَنْ تَشَاءُ And you take away power from whoever you want. وَتُعِزُّ مَنْ تَشَاءُ And you elevate whoever you want. وَتُذِلُّ مَنْ تَشَاءُ And you degrade whoever you want. بِيَدِكَ الْخَيْرِ in all of this, the only source of true goodness is you. This, when you reflect on this and you supplicate this, you recite this as a form of supplication, you start understanding the meaning of Islam. the state where you actually surrender to that. Yeah, I do what I can, I do my best, I want this, I don't want that, but ultimately this world is owned by its owner. It's spoken for, it's a done, it's, it, and that owner decides what becomes of this world. You do your best, but the rest is absolutely to God. From night comes the day, and from day comes the night. This is 27. The, the only the, the thing I want to just point out about um, 27 is um, a tradition um, a tradition attributed to the, the prophet in which he the prophet uses that the dead from the life, from the living, and the living from the dead. Um, the the Prophet ﷺ is reported to have. They saw, he saw a woman in in Medina that he didn't recognize, and he said, "Who is this woman?" And and they told him, "This is Khalida bint Khalida bint al Aswad, and Khalida bint al Aswad bint Yahus." Um, anyway. And that uh, she had converted to Islam, and that, uh, and Khalida bint al Aswad was sort of known, in, um, and I think that's why probably the Prophet sort of couldn't believe his eyes because she was known as a someone who was rather intense or fanatic in her uh, hate of Muslims, and there, behold, she had converted to Islam, and she was now living in Medina. 
And the the Prophet commented on this by saying, Subhanallah, tukhrijul hayya min al-mayyit wa tukhrijul mayyit min al-hayy. Subhanallah, Allah brings the living from the dead and the dead from the living. And the reason that several traditions like this become very important, especially in the Sufi tradition, where always reading references in the Quran of bringing the life from the life from the dead as a reference to spiritual life. In the Sufi perspective, those who are oblivious, those who are spiritually dead are in reality dead. And uh, the sort of far more important than technical life is life where your, your consciousness opens up to what the, tr- the truth is. Um, this is just as a, as a side note, although I'm not focusing on the Sufi approach in Ali Omran for many different reasons. Okay. What time is it? Okay, let's, um, we'll, we'll take one more. Okay. So, then, after لا يتخذ المؤمنون المؤمنون الكافرين أولياء من دون المؤمنين ومن يفعل ذلك فليس من الله في شيء إلا أن تتقوا منهم تقاء ويحذركم الله نفسه وإلى الله المصير Now Right How do I put this well, first, let, let me read the translation. Maybe that will help. Okay, so... So, then, let not the believers take those who deny the truth for their allies in preference to the believers. Since he who does this cuts himself off from God in everything, unless it is to protect yourselves against them in this way. But God warns you to beware of God, and for with God is all your journeys end. This is Muhammad Asad's tafsir. And we, and we can even say, and whether you conceal what is in your heart or bring it out in the open, God knows, knows it. Um, so, Then the Quran starts. We're gonna the, the Al Umran will circle back to the two hosts, but keep in your in your mental image these two parties, and it's like the Quran is unpacking that party that says it is with God, fighting in God's side. All the nuances of the pitfalls that this party might fall into. And 
after this grand constitutional principles, Ali Omran sort of focuses in like a, like a camera coming for a close-up and says, in this, in recognizing God's complete sovereignty, when it comes to the microdynamics, God knows that there are those of you who fail. And the failure is that some continue to have as their authoritative frame of reference not God medical mulk, but their perce the perceived approval or disapproval of non-Muslims. Many people had entered Islam, but these were not people that had spent, had converted in Mecca and migrated with the Prophet. These were, a lot of them had converted in Medina. And at this point, there were even people who were converting from outside Medina. And, but the idea that their loyalty and their standards and their ethics and their morality should be God-centered was alien. And they continued to struggle with, because they did business, they some of them lived among the Muslims, some of them lived among Muslims, but continued to do business and to socialize with non-Muslims. Their, their sense of validation continued to come from their non-Muslim relations. And the danger here is that if you are not sufficiently conscious, then your value system itself is compromised. This is not about whether you have a friend who is a Muslim or not, but what that friendship represents for you is the validation of that Muslim, not of that person. I mean, you could have a Muslim friend who is not Muslim at all in, in terms of their value system. So it's, it, is, it is whether they ultimately compromise your realization of Allah Malik al-Mulk, Allah as the sovereign, and the authoritative frame of reference for all. There are reports that say that... Um, that again, but anyway, there are reports that say that the, the 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 occasion for revelation of this verse is that there were some Muslims who had some people had converted to Islam, but had relatives and friends with Jewish tribes, and that they continued to socialize with those friends and relatives 
far more than they build connections and social a social network with their fellow Muslims. Again, I don't doubt that this historical report, in fact, reflects a historical reality, but I doubt that that was an occasion for revelation for many different reasons. So I, I think it, it is sort of like, as often happened in Islamic tradition, it's sort of like saying, well, that sort of fits this ayah, so it must have been the best reason that the ayah was revealed. Um, the evidence for that is, is rather quite weak. Okay. And then that this verse 30 that Allah Allah Allah's self God's self warns you that there will come a day in which if you are not careful whatever bad you've committed there will come a day where you will wish wholeheartedly that you had lived a more conscientious life that as 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 verse 30 said tawaddu law anna baynaha wa baynahu amadan ba'id that that it, it will wish as if it was just never has been then 31 qul إن كنتم تحبون الله فاتبعوني يحببكم الله ويغفر لكم ذنوبكم والله غفور رحيم. So 31 as is clear from the language but the context is is that one so the polemics between Muslims and non-Muslims is the among the the Jewish groups or the Jewish tribes would claim that they have a favored position with God and they are beloved by God. And among some of the polemics with Christians who claimed that they love God and God loves them. But a, a, a proclamation based not on, on ethical performance, not on an actual conduct. So some of the stories we have, for instance, is that a, a tribe that comes to see the prophet or visit the prophet and they end up, they start arguing with Muslims that well, you know we know that we love God and uh, and that God loves us back, and then some man in Pharisee says I know the this um, these group of priests uh, because I served under them and they used to steal donations of and they, they used to hoard the donations of the poor and basically use them to enrich themselves uh, 
you know, again, I, I believe that that report did take place, but I don't believe that it was necessarily the occasion for revelation, as some have claimed. But the point is that love or the claim of loving God here it's concretely it's, the, the, the Quran comes and says well if you know if it is a real love for God that you seek then this path is the true path and this is by the way something that the Sufis emphasize this path is the true path that leads to a real loving relationship with God. It is a past of not a proclaimed love on the basis of that God just loves us and sacrificed for us and that's it. Or a, a privileged people that God has chosen or some other status, but an actual, an actual ethical course an actual ethical methodology where you invest in this relationship of love and that love is on the basis of something real and this is bolstered where before I forget, some of the polemics where the, the Jews say, uh, say we are the sons of God and, and uh, beloved by God or the Christians would, because the, the, the tendency in the Bible to refer to God as the Father and then the polemic of saying, well, you know, he's our Father and so of course if you recognize that this is the father, then the father loves the sons. And we are, and that claim of a special status because we simply call God the father is we're part of the polemics that also existed at the time. That the Quran comes and says, well, you know, it's, it's not about calling God the father and hence an assumed loving relationship. Love between a human being and God must be based on the fact that God doesn't need human beings and God is self-sufficient. And the fact that God loves what a human being does and that's what makes a human being close to God or alienated from God. Um, the other thing that the Prophet ﷺ commenting on verse 31, there are a hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ talks about a sh what, what the Prophet calls a shirkul khafi, or in some traditions a kufrul khafi, hidden shirk or um, or a hidden kuf, meaning stealth shirk or shirk that you you we don't 
openly recognized as shirk. And when the Prophet ﷺ explains this, he says, and to hib ala shay to hib and to hib ala shay min al-jur wa tubghidu ala shay min al-adl. And then he says, وَهَلَ الدِّينَ إِلَّا الْحُبُّ وَالْبُغْضِ فِي اللَّهِ So what the Prophet here is saying is that you want to understand what real love or not love between God and human beings, you have to pay attention to still shirk or still scoff in some traditions. What that means is and to ala shay'in min means that despite an unjust situation, you still love. Think of this. So, you st- you there is injustice, but you wave it away and say, I don't care. I still like it. It's still fine with me. There is, whether it's a situation, whether it's a person, definitely applies to all those who tolerate unjust rulers at a minimum. And say, yeah, you know, they might be, you know, they might do some injustice, but they're fine with me. That is a shirk al-khafi. And the Prophet says that if you have that, then your claim that you love God is untrue. Or, وَتُبْغُدُ عَلَى شَيْءٍ مِنَ الْعَدْلِ That, although a situation leads to justice, you're not happy with it. Because it doesn't further your interests. Or does not serve your biases. So, for instance, let me take a very concrete example. In the modern age, again, you know, I can't help it because I'm Egyptian. There are so many Egyptians that say, oh, we love Sisi. You tell them, yes, but Sisi has Gaza blockading and is killing the Gazans, murdering the Gazans. And say, yeah, well, you know, okay, but still, don't you see what all the good that CC does? He builds bridges and roads, and that's precisely what the Prophet is talking about. Then you can't claim you have, I don't care what your piety is, if you see injustice and you say it doesn't matter, I still love it, or still love a person who commits it then your claim of love for God is a facade. Can you imagine if Muslims anchored that as a principle in their life? Can you imagine the transformation in, in, in everything they do? We say, you know, our mission is very clear. We, we love justice because we God is just and God loves justice. 
all the all the people that today you know say oh we love the king of Saudi Arabia and the crown prince of Saudi Arabia yes but they're killing thousands of people in Yemen yeah I know but you know but still we love them because they do a lot of it. I mean that's precisely how immorality creeps in, creeps in. And that's precisely how two hosts, I keep going back to that theme, because I need to keep reminding you of it, two hosts that are confronting itself in the battlefield, one that claims to be fighting in God's cause, and one that claims to, one is not. The one that claims to be fighting in God's cause might end up not being with God at all. Do you see? See how it, it's like, it, it, it it starts out and then it's like uh, um, a dissection, like it's unpacking the little layers to you, for you. Okay, let's stop here and we will continue Surah Al-Umran next halakha insha'Allah and uh, pray that we continue the halakhas regularly without interruption from now on insha'Allah. Okay. Well, I've been taking notes, so I'll just <laughs> share what I have on summary um, because I think, well, we're trying to also create a system, so it's a little bit helpful, too, when we when we come back and review this in the future, maybe to like, look at highlights. But, I mean, first of all, I just, you know, like I always start by saying thank you and all and, and how grateful. Um, but, I, I, you know, like when you feel it so viscerally, and I always say this, like, you know, somewhere at one point in the halakha, I become overcome with just this visceral emotion of like, I can't really quite describe it other than to say it's it's so um, like like you feel you feel truth and you feel something opening. You know, in the past I've said it's like shackles getting undone. Um, but what struck me today is like you know we haven't we haven't been in a holocaust for two weeks, and. Um, when we're back in this and we, 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 we get to experience it and be in it and just um, lose ourselves in it, you are reminded of, um, you know, what happens when you take two weeks off and you don't study God. You feel like, at least I feel like, the voice of God has been silenced in, in our life. Like, I've always believed, like, okay, you know, like the idea, just conceptually, okay, Quran is, you know, God's words to you, God's voice to you, but you know, and so you have the choice every day. You can wake up and you can open it and have God talk to you. Um, but this is different too with Project Illumin because now we actually—I feel like we actually understand it much better. You know, before it was just you open the book and you read it, and maybe you understand it, maybe you don't. Some of it kind of hits you, and some of it doesn't. But this engagement, you feel like, oh my God, I, you know, we've been, you know, when you, when you silence the voice of God or you don't have the voice of God like this with you for two weeks, you feel the difference. And so, again, it just underscores how grateful I am that we can be here together and learn from you um, and learn in this way. So, um, alhamdulillah for, for, like, taking it away to appreciate what we have. Um, so in terms of just key, key takes, takeaways, I thought the whole idea of understanding the idea of, of Um al-Kitab, the mother of the Kitab, and just that the heart and soul of the book and the dynamic that took place of someone understanding 
what's clear versus what is ambiguous or allegorical and then the human tendency to say okay I like you know I can't articulate the clarity of this so I'm going to revert to the clarity of things like inheritance and the rules of divorce as being the heart of the Quran um, is so such a powerful understanding of like how did we end up where we are today because when people talk about Islam and what is Islam you know they talk about oh it's hudud punishments or it's you know the rules of this or the rules of that you know it, it's in some ways it's sort of like okay you didn't rise to the challenge of saying okay we know justice is clear goodness is clear in terms of the principle but in terms of the application because the application can take so many different forms we were sort of cowardly and we said okay we revert to what's clear and not and so to, to make that distinction and say, no, we're talking about, you know, clear ethical principles, clear foundations, and then the application is what gives us, you know, room to traverse and apply according to our context. Um, that is, was such an important um, understanding. And, um, and then again, to underscore what you've always said about, you know, when you are actually going to apply those ethical principles, you have to have mastered the systems of knowledge of your day and age. Because as you put it, you have to have language to give life to a text. And that is just such a powerful idea. You can't speak the language of your age and communicate the Quran in a, in a compelling way unless you actually have the language to do so and the mastery of knowledge to do so. So that thought was incredible. Um, and then the idea that all is from God and all of what is here needs to be studied. So you can't take the Abdullah, Abdullahi Naim approach of saying, well, that's irrelevant. So, you know, we just take the, the Meccan surahs and not the Medinan. But it's like, no, we have to actually engage the entire text and study the entire text and recognize that, you know, these examples or applications are learning tools for us to understand how to apply a principle in a given situation. So in that sense, now you've sort of unlocked the entire Quran for us, because if you were in the mindset of, well, these things are abrogated, they are not relevant. No, you said, actually, it's all from God. It's all from relevant. It's all relevant. We all, we need to study it all. So that was extremely powerful. Um, and Again, the idea that a definition of a truly learned human being um, starts with um, a human being's personal ethics, and that you can't separate, um, you know, the the intellect from the ethical, you know, morality of a person. So if someone says, "Yeah, he's a great scholar, but you know, he actually does all of this stuff that's kind of immoral on the side," so to, you know that that is that's a non-starter, that's a non-sequitur that we shouldn't accept. Um, and again, the, the emphasis on two groups, those that are struggling either with God um, for a cause for God, so you will ha you know, have God's aid or struggling for your own egotistical reasons without God's help. Um, and that all of these things are a warning to Muslims. Um, and you know, how many um, times, well, I mean, so many examples that you gave made me think of our current age and the examples. Um, so for example, when, you know, God is with those who allow for advocates of justice. They don't kill the prophets. They don't kill people who are reformers that are, you know, advocates for justice. Or if they're snuffing those people out, like the people in the Middle East who are imprisoning all of the reformers and people who stand up for justice, 
you know, how scary God is not with you and God will, you know, potentially risk God uh, abandoning you and your society. Um, and just the the true liberation of understanding, like if God is, is the owner, um, you know, after you put in your best effort, whatever remains is truly up to God and not necessarily in your hand, then that really just pushes you to think, okay, my job is really just to do the, the best that I can with what I have, and I leave the rest to Allah. So you're not always trying to control everything, which I know, you know, people, you know, myself included, who like to try to control things, um, you recognize you can only control so much, and that's, that's a point of liberation and empowerment. The beautiful idea of bringing the dead to life is actually bringing people who are spiritually dead to spiritually, to bringing them spiritually alive is, is extremely powerful. And this issue about um, not taking um, non-Muslims as your allies, which I've so often heard, you know, okay, you can't be friends with non-Muslims, right? It comes out in a very, you know, uh, personal way, but it's that, that to teach us, it's not about taking individual friends. It's about changing your frame of reference. And, you know, to bring that to a modern day example, you know, we, we see such a strong dynamic of Muslims, especially here in America, coming here, they're in the immigrant mentality, you know, they want to be accepted by the white society or the rich society or, you know, whatever their frame of reference is for what is, what you should aspire to and um, forgetting that there's a whole frame of reference that has to do with being God-centered. And that is just such a powerful message for us in our day and age. Um, and the notion of loving God, um, being premised on God not needing human beings, but God loving you because of what you do, not because of who you are, but because of what you do. Um, and that finally, that you cannot love God or you know, expect that God will love you if you're fine with injustice. Um, and so this, this, this surah, which we only covered, I don't know how many, how many ayat, but, or how many verses, but there's just so much that is so transformative and so relevant for our age. And, um, I'm just so grateful to, to be back, um, here learning and I'm so excited for however many more days we have of Imran. So if Bakara was 13, I don't know how many that means for Imran, 10, <laughs> no. But alhamdulillah, thank you so much um, for everything and for letting us, you know, learn a side of the Quran that we obviously haven't found anywhere else. At least I haven't. So I'm so grateful. Thank you, everybody, for being with us. And um, oh, I should make the announcement. So we um, are shifting back to Tuesdays, not Wednesdays. So we're going to do Tuesdays and Saturdays. Um, but we'll, we'll send out messages too. So, but anyway, for you guys to, to plan and six o'clock probably on Tuesday, inshallah. So have a wonderful rest of the weekend, um, and we will hope to see you on Tuesday, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs>